I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is the weekly briefing for the week ending February 18th. This week's podcast is sponsored by Renaissance. Renaissance, a global leader in embedded semiconductor solutions. The phrase, Internet of Things, is vague, and that's on purpose. What things? Some things? All things? Isn't that a little broad? Well, yes, it was broad, because when the phrase was coined, philosophically, just about any thing might one day be connected to the internet. 20 years later, and now we have connected cars, connected coffee makers, and even connected cows. So yeah, it turns out just about any thing could be connected. Now that's fun for the market, but somebody's got to enable the IoT. And enabling every thing that could be connected to be connected is a lot to take on because things are different. A cow doesn't need what a car does and vice versa. And thus, the industrial Internet of Things was born. It was natural, necessary even, to sort the things within the IoT into categories of similar things. This week, our guest is Renaissance Executive Vice President Silas Chittapetti, and we'll talk about the category of industrial IoT, the technological requirements that industrial IoT applications tend to have in common, and about some of the new technologies that are enabling the industrial IoT in particular. In our second segment in this episode, we talk about the effects of two huge news items. Intel Foundry Services is backing the RISC-V architecture, and NVIDIA has dropped its bid to buy ARM. You'll hear our conversation with Kevin Crewell and Steve Leibson of Tirius Research about what that all means for the competitive landscape in the microprocessor market. First, here's a quick overview of some of the other stories we covered in EE Times this week. This year is EE Times' 50th anniversary. Over the course of the year, we'll be looking back at the last 50 years, but mostly we'll be looking forward. Where does that start? The electronics industry is already involved with renewable energy sources, electric vehicles, the emergence of green supercomputers, and on low-power electronics that encompass everything from the use of wide bandgap materials for power ICs to the development of TinyML for low-power processors running artificial intelligence applications. And we've been covering all of that and more all along. We don't think that sustainable engineering has been previously called out for the industry-changing and world-changing trend that it is. Entering our 50th year, we will have a special focus on green engineering. Our declaration of intent is in a column called 50 and Green. And we've also run our first articles specifically labeled as Sustainable Engineering Stories. Look for these two headlines. The tech industry adapts to climate change. And the second is, for IBM, sustainability is a business strategy. Both are from frequent contributor and Tirius Research Analyst Jim McGregor. There will be more to come. In fact, there will be more to come in just a few minutes. Stay tuned. Next, despite ongoing hyperbole from some of the world's most prominent technology companies, fully self-driving cars are years away from being commercialized. Progress is being made, though. 
automotive expert, Egil Juliuson, a regular contributor to EE Times, provides a reality check on autonomous driving technology by examining exactly who is doing exactly what when it comes to AV technology. Speaking of AV technology, NVIDIA is going to partner with Jaguar Land Rover on AV development. We've got the particulars on that deal. All of those stories and more are on the website at eetimes.com. If you're on this episode's webpage already, there are links directly to the articles I just mentioned. The Internet of Things is vast. One way to wrangle it, at least from the technology enablement side, is to find a set of applications that have similar needs and collect a set of technologies that meet those requirements. One of the more recent examples is the artificial intelligence of things, which is a phrase we hope dies as soon as possible to be replaced by something, anything, less clumsy. Another is the Industrial Internet of Things, or IIoT. Also not a particularly felicitous phrase, but we can learn to live with it. Renaissance is a company that specializes in products for the embedded market, and the IoT, as vast as it may be, is a subset of the embedded market. The company provides many of the enabling technologies for the IoT in general, and the industrial Internet of Things in particular. Celeste Chittipetti is the company's executive vice president, and he's been keeping a close eye on the development of the market for the industrial internet of things. I asked Celeste to start by defining the market for us. First and foremost, Brian, thank you for having me on this podcast uh, and giving us an opportunity, Renaissance, to to talk a little bit about uh, our industrial segment and in particular the IoT aspects of industrial. As with all things, right, the the major move in the industrial IoT area as well is intelligence moving closer to the endpoint, right? The same trend that applies to IoT actually applies to the industrial segment as well. And the other trend that is important from an industrial perspective is the broader move towards sustainability. So there's two trends that are driving industry. One is obviously the 4.0, which people have been talking about for quite some period of time. Uh, The second aspect is how is intelligence moving to the edge and how is that impacting, especially the access layer when it comes to the industrial segment. And then the third aspect is really sustainability, which is equally uh, important uh, in this area. So as we see the market, right, the The move is when sensors and sensor networks, and this sort of uh, leads in into some of the subsequent discussions we can have on this topic, sensors and sensor networks can, in an industrial environment, especially with the advent of Wi-Fi 6 and Wi-Fi 6 Edge, can connect to the endpoint uh, or to the access layer pretty well. Before, everything used to be wired solutions that you had. And Wi-Fi 5 obviously had interference effects that started to play a role that kept in from broad-based adoption in the industrial area. Okay, That's number one. So now you have sensors, sensor networks, which are ubiquitous in an industrial environment. It allows you to gather a lot more data, do a lot more predictive analytics and so on, which probably didn't have an opportunity uh, in previous eras, uh, this is the case. The second thing also is the need for lower latency within the industrial environment is also driving to more modernization even of wired networks, if you will. There's more protocols mm-hmm. that are emerging like Profinet, like 
PSN and so on that are starting to make uh, an impact uh, in that area. So in every one of these areas, uh, Renaissance certainly has an important role, whether it's the control plane or the access plane or the sensor level at the very end, uh, very end you can sort of think about, uh, think about the products that impact uh, the customer and what we can do to help uh, in that area. Third aspect that I mentioned was sustainability. Uh, sustainability certainly is taking on a very important role, especially with respect to driving, uh, you know, lower power consumption, uh, the move to uh, brushless DC motors away from an AC motor environment. All these are things that are starting to play uh, an impact uh, in the industrial environment and kind of point towards what's what I would consider to be more uh, broad secular growth, if you will. Uh, in this segment, uh, which was more cyclical uh, in the past. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, how I view it. Well, that's an uh, excellent nutshell. Let's uh, let's dig a little deeper into some of these things. Uh, first, let's just define the market. Um, industrial, you immediately think of manufacturing, factories, um, uh, warehouses, uh, maybe even shipping. Um, is that the totality of what we consider the industrial market, or is it more expansive than that? It's more expansive than that. I mean, certainly you have the big school industrial companies. You have the Schneiders, the Siemens, the ABBs, uh, and, and you know, name it, several large companies uh, that have dominated the space for decades, right? right. Uh, and, then, and then you sort of step more into what I call uh, high high. H HVACs, that's also, we consider that to be an industrial segment. We okay. also consider, for example, the more uh, home appliances, if you will, the washers, the, the, the drying machines, the dishwashers, and so on, that also encompass that particular segment. And we also think about uh, even power tools, right, Bo broadly mm -hmm. falling into that category of industrial segments, robotics, for example, drones. All these are categories that certainly impact the industrial segment. And, and when I talk about drones, I don't mean the commercial toy drones, but certainly the more <laughs> industrial <laughs> class of uh, drones uh, that are important for that arena. So uh, it's a broad, it's a very large segment uh, for, for, for us and for the industry at large. So we've been talking about um, pushing closer to the edge. So in this case, I think from your answer, some of uh, I get some of what we're talking about as the edge is pretty obvious. It's the robot on a production line. It's a drone doing surveillance for agriculture or surveying or whatever it happens to be. It might be someone's washer and dryer. Um, where was the line before and, and why, what's the value of pushing to, What's the value of having, I understand the value of being able to connect an industrial robot on a manufacturing line. You want to coordinate the manufacturing line. Uh, how bad do you need to coordinate washers and dryers? So let's talk about the the, the push or maybe the pull of, of drawing things closer from wherever yeah. they were to the edge. 
So, so it's an interesting question, right? I mean, if you, even if you look at the typical washer and dryer, and this is where the example of sustainability starts to matter, right? You'd like to know how much the what what you can do to optimize the water consumption in mm-hmm. your washing cycle, right? Given that water is a scarce resource, that certainly starts to play a much more important role. Or, for example, how much power is your dryer consuming during a typical dry cycle, and how do you optimize it, right? Because it's all about efficiency and how do you make these appliances more effective. Uh, at the end of the day, so they're less energy consuming than they've had in the past, right? So sensors start to play a role uh, in that kind of area. And the other example I'll give you, even though, you know, this is sort of being adopted now a little bit more, is a refrigerator, right? Typically, mm-hmm. you would, you know, there's a lot of wastage of stuff that you keep in your refrigerator. I don't know about yours, certainly in our, in our case, that's the case. But if I'll, you have I'll, some... I'll volunteer my refrigerator, <laughs> yes, okay. So certainly, you know, if things get spoiled, there are sensors that, that can be used to detect, right, by the odors or by other things uh, to dispose of certain, uh, <laughs> certain, certain food items that you have in your refrigerator. So that's kind of where the lines are being drawn. And even the refrigerator, right, consuming uh, which is the cycle uh, that you have and how much power is being pulled by a compressor and what can be done to make it more efficient. That's Those are the kinds of examples that are starting to play a broader role uh, in what's happening in the industrial environment. And, you know, my microcontrollers are becoming far more ubiquitous. Uh, and you know these things start to matter, right? Uh, even in even a simple, even a uh, and and even simpler, probably more consumerish application, if you will, is a coffee pot to kind of figure out the typical coffee pot. You switch it on, and then you go away, right? And it keeps on heating up, right? The heating element, and you could be smart about the way the, how long the heating element does, what how long it wor- is on, and what you need to do to make it more effective in terms of energy consumption. So um, another thing you were talking about was connectivity. Um, You mentioned a couple of uh, variations of Wi-Fi. Let's just uh, uh, just briefly touch on some of the alternatives that are available. Um, Wi-Fi six is is a it was built for this sort of thing, Uh, but there are you know. Five, you know, the, the the communications companies would love to use five G. Yep. Um, there are coming you know, broadband companies like the cable companies that are that have Wi Fi routers in your home. Um, how does that? How does? How do you How's see that that playing out? That playing out? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, look, there's a lot of work where the 5G companies do want to get in into every aspect of your life, no question about it. Uh, but, you know, where I <clears throat> I see a coexistence, I actually see a coexistence between Wi-Fi 6 and 5G, right? I see 5G playing a role to your access point. And after the access point, it's really Wi-Fi 6 and 6 Edge. The advantage, certainly, of Wi-Fi 6 and 6 Edge uh, is in a closer environment, right? Uh, it works far more effectively. In a 5G uh, scenario within your within a closed environment with bounded walls and stuff, it becomes a little bit more challenging uh, to have uh, that. So I think Wi-Fi 6 Edge will start to play an important role. Uh, it allows, it has a lot of features, for example, that the typical Wi-Fi 5 doesn't, uh, uh, including, you know, the, the lower latency, the the fact uh, that you can, the schedule, uh, scheduling stuff and so on, uh, which are very important. Uh, and then the other aspect of it 
uh, that starts to uh, that that starts to matter, right? Massive MIMO, which is another capability that you have with Wi-Fi Six Edge, all these start to matter. And five G, right? Despite you know, in despite all the hype of it, the millimeter wave has been kind of slow to adopt still in the industry. Mm-hmm. So it's taken quite a bit of time, uh, and I think it'll be a few more years before you start getting around it. If you look at the amount of problems we've had in the U.S., even with the basic 5G adoption, uh, with the airlines and so on, right, where we right. we. we we seem to have problems that other nations don't. So uh, that that's one of the things that we have to watch out for. So Wi-Fi 6, 6 Edge will probably get some adoption over proprietary protocols uh, mm-hmm. that exist uh, in the marketplace, just because cost, right? When you right. adopt a standard platform, it's going to be definitely uh, cheaper uh, and a better route to go. So uh, I see that playing a role. Uh, and I think the two of them will coexist over time. I do see a need for coexistence. And I'll give you another beautiful thing about the Wi-Fi 6, 6 Edge. We, you know, with our product that we have, we're going to be announcing a feature called Doppler imaging. Uh, and the beauty, beauty of a Doppler imaging is, as it says, right, you can yeah. sense the distance off a person, so per, and you can direct air flows appropriately or do other things, right? Object detection. Uh, and all it does is you have two radios and you're basically localizing uh, right. how, where the air flows and stuff should go. So those are the kinds of things that are happening on the Wi-Fi 6, 6 Edge front that are pretty exciting. Wow, that's 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 phenomenally precise with yeah. with with systems that have never really been precise before. Exactly, exactly. Right, yeah, that's ba- it's it it allows you to do things that uh, that weren't th- that people didn't think about uh, before, uh, just by using an access point, right? Solution. So uh, it's going to be it's going to start to make a difference, uh, and you'll see probably in talking to some of the leading industrial customers, what we find is they think that Wi-Fi six six edge will be first, and as five G starts to improve, right, uh, and it may start to get a little bit more increased adoption. But certainly their perspective is that Wi-Fi six six edge will play an important role uh, in the factory of the future. So we'll see. <laughs> All right. Well, that's fascinating. So, uh, so you talked about sustainability, and we mentioned that briefly. And I'd like to get back into it. Um, but um, sustainability has resonance with some people, and still doesn't have enough resonance <laughs> with others. Uh-huh. Um, but it sounds like uh, at least some uh, industrial IoT customers are thinking about matching features, new features with the sustainability approach. Uh, you know, it, it makes it an easier, sell. two points of sale are easier than one, right? Right. Um, so, uh, so where is this, com- do you have any insight into where this is coming from? Is it individual customers, um, you know, your appliance manufacturer deciding they want to, you know, they, they want to do something sustainable for their customers, or do you have a sense that there's a, a wider range of, okay, your appliance customers talking to local utilities, they know that the local utilities are want such and so. Do you have a sense of how much interplay there is among the various um, participants in the industrial IoT? 
So, so several aspects, right? First and foremost, uh, it all starts with the stakeholders of these industrial companies, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and certainly at the, at the end of the day, uh, we are, uh, as uh, executives of companies, uh, accountable to our major shareholders and stakeholders. So one yeah. aspect is certainly uh, the the money uh, the money managers, right, uh, that are on the pushing the ESG angle of it. Environmental, social, and governance aspects. So there are mutual funds that are basically focused on uh, environmental, social, and governance aspects uh, that drive that are increasingly driving behavior of uh, corporations. Uh, th- that's one angle. The second angle is certainly the consumers demanding it, right? Uh, increasingly, the consumer is becoming more aware of the energy consumption of devices. Uh, they're also becoming uh, more aware of the environmental impact the products that they have uh, on the uh, the products that they buy have on the environment, uh, and that certainly plays uh, an important uh, role uh, in some of the de- some of the behaviors, if you will. Uh, of the industrial companies and what you need to drive them towards. So, uh, so I think those those features are being demanded by customers on the one end. On the other side, they're also being pushed by the stakeholders and the shareholders of the companies, uh, which sort of see an increasing need for companies to be more socially conscious, uh, if you will. Uh, and, and that is a big change that's happening not only in the U.S., but it's happening globally as well. Uh, which is driving the the need for this. So it's more than a person or two demanding it. It's overall a, a trend that we see in the industry. All right. So let's talk next about implementation details. That's Renaissance's uh, bread and butter, right? Right. Um, uh, what are, so the company has multiple product lines that all have um some contribution to make to the whole um uh, picture of of enabling iot industrial okay. iot the power aspect the sensor aspect um tell me about um does the industrial iot in particular have any specific demands um, that are driving the innovations that Renaissance is trying to develop. For instance, earlier you mentioned latency. Perhaps that's one of them. Perhaps not. But right. No. So, so there's several aspects, right? In addition to power, uh, I mean, power consumption, which is an obvious one, which is uh, pretty straightforward. The need for low latency, which is equally important. Uh, the other thing that starts to become more important when you look at at sensor networks, right, is the ability to uh, to to get signals from a from a sensor network and be able to process them in parallel. Right. So where does this have an impact? So, for example, in a CPU, right, you typically what you have is you get a signal from a sensor, you you do something, you manipulate the data and you send it to an actuator. Right. And then you wait for the actuator to do something before you go back to another sensor, get the information and repeat the set of actions. Right. So typical MCU would be a single core MCU. 
Now, when you move to multi-core MCUs, which they are, the cost obviously goes up quite a bit, right? When you move from a single core to multi-core. So one of, of the innovations, one of the innovations that we worked on is this Forge FPGA solution uh, that we announced a little while back, right? Now, the mm -hmm. beauty of an FPGA is it allows multi-threading, which means you can have multiple right. inputs go in from a network and handle it at the same time. However, the FPGA is a very big problem. You go and you buy an FPGA out there, it'll cost you 50 to 75 bucks, which is probably more than the cost of your sensor network to begin with, right? Right. So, so that kind of precludes the notion of uh, putting an FPGA in that kind of environment. So what we've done is we've come up with this Forge FPGA solution, which is ultra, which is which is meant for very few gates, right? Below less than 50,000 gates. Actually, even less than that. It's actually 10, less than about 10,000 or so, 5,000, 10,000 gates. Nope. Very okay. few lookup, yeah, very few lookup tables uh, that are involved in the process. Ultra low power, ultra low cost. So 50, below 50 cents at high volume, right? So the beauty of that is then in an, you can envision in an industrial and IoT environment where you have multiple sensor networks, these things actually playing as important a role in terms of processing the data as you would a typical CPU, right? Because there are certain advantages that you have within the network. So that's kind of some of the things that we're doing. Certainly in the sensors itself, we're spending a lot of time optimizing for power and for power consumption uh, in the sensors uh, itself. Uh, we are doing certain unique things when it comes to our flow sensors, for example, where a typical flow sensor would have moving parts. Uh, and those things typically tend to get clogged up. So we've come out with an innovation that allows you to have flow sensors, which are optimal for certain flow rates, not for all flow rates, of course, uh, that are based on looking at temperature differences uh, and allow you to calibrate against flows and so on. So there's sort of a lot of innovation that's happening uh, in that area uh, that could be quite uh, interesting for uh, several uh, several years ahead. Nice. Um, should we, so when you're talking about pulling in sensor data um, and processing it, mm -hmm. a lot of one approach is to um, push artificial intelligence out to the edge. Yep. Um, does that does that trend? Is that a separate trend or is it complementary to what we've just been discussing? I, I, I certainly think it'll be complementary uh, to what we're discussing. Um, mm -hmm. The reason the reason being, if you, you can envision, for example, right, if you're doing, uh, if you're scanning just as a, 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 a an example, right, if you're looking for mm -hmm. defects in a line or something of that sort, mm -hmm. that's a perfect example of where you'd want to have as much of the AI localized as possible, right? If it's a defect that's recurring that you see ever so often, it's a lot simpler for it to come here as opposed to go somewhere to the cloud and then get it processed to stop the machine, right? So, uh, or to stop the process flow. So that you would see a lot more of those kinds of activities happening in the future where localized actions will drive certain sets of behaviors and not, you know, uh, even even when it comes to things like facial recognition, right, uh, in an environment, it, it, you know, one could one could have a separate discussion on the privacy aspects of that. But there are uh, you could 
you could really have a scenario mm-hmm. where you could, you know, identify a certain person that you don't want entering your office environment or something like that, right? So uh, those are some of the things where AI certainly is moving uh, its way into the uh, endpoint or the edge, uh, if you will, uh, of the network. And increasingly, the one thing uh, that's interesting, Brian, is no single company, right, is going to be able to address the myriad of applications in the industrial environment all by itself. So you need ecosystem partners, uh, you need the libraries, you need the software support uh, to really enable your customers uh, to come on board with a lot of these uh, solutions into the marketplace, right? so by I mean biometric uh, recognition at the airport, right? So mm-hmm. you can walk in onto a plane without having a boarding pass or anything like that. All these are things that people are working on, right? Interesting, interesting. Yeah. So it's actually uh, it, it's it's fascinating to hear that not only are we improving and rethinking things we've already been doing, this is. The, the the technology is enabling a whole new set of things that that are po- that were never before possible. That were never, yeah, exactly. And even even simple things that you would not think of, right? Like packaging technology. And mm-hmm. by packaging technology, I mean where you where you wrap meat in a package or so I, was like exa- I, I thought we were going to be talking about multi-chip modules. So basically you can think about a real cheap sensor so that you're not packaging spoiled meat, right? Mm. Just by looking at the colors and so on. People are doing things with skin tones to optimize your makeup for your particular skin tone. All these are examples of things that are happening that you would not have envisioned some years ago. By using optical sensors, I, I it uh, it amazes me to hear that the electronics industry is dealing with Revlon and yeah yeah exactly right L'Oreal yeah. yeah exactly exactly you would never <laughs> you would never have envisioned those kinds of things happening in, in the past. It's a broad area. It's a fascinating area and one that'll provide uh, decades of of growth to come and probably uh, soften the typical cyclicality, right, that we saw uh, in the past. Uh, I mean, you're not entirely ever gonna avoid cycles, but I think the newer innovations will drive uh, the industry to new levels uh, that have been, uh, that have not been seen in the past. This has been a fun conversation, Salash, thank you. Thank you, Brian. We've been talking with Renaissance Executive Vice President Silesh Chittapetti. Just so you know, thanks to Silesh's reminder, I cleaned out my refrigerator after we recorded that segment. Last week on the podcast, we touched briefly upon two big pieces of news. One was that NVIDIA gave up on its offer to buy ARM Holdings from SoftBank. The other was that Intel Foundry Services made arrangements with several fabulous chip companies that are designing RISC-V processors, and it joined RISC-V International, the nonprofit body that oversees the development of the RISC-V ecosystem. Those two events will have some seismic effects on the processor market. Kevin Crewell is Principal Analyst at Tirius Research and a frequent guest on this show. Steve Liebson is a former editor and the newest analyst at Tirius. 
I got on the phone with Steve and Kevin recently to talk about what all this recent news is likely to mean for the processor market. So I'm going to start chronologically. Uh, first, Intel announced that Intel Foundry Services and Intel Capital were going to drop a billion dollars on expanding the ecosystem for Intel Foundry Services. And a lot of that money is going to drop right on top of leading-edge RISC-V vendors, including Andes and Vantage and Sci-5 and... Esperanto. Thank you, Esperanto. And this was to support both uh, IP blocks that could go into chips that Intel Foundry Services is making and also part of the chiplet strategy. And I thought it was very interesting that Esperanto said they were going to be contributing chiplets to this thing. So that's all quite in line with what Intel Foundry Services is trying to do. The very next day, and it's probably coincidence because none of this can happen overnight, but the very next day, right. NVIDIA announced that it was officially throwing in the towel on its attempt to acquire ARM. And at the same time, ARM announced that uh, Mr. Seegers was stepping down as CEO and Renee Haas, who is a friend of mine, was stepping up. And so that's, that was a double blast of not-so-good news for ARM. Not that Renee Haas is bad news, but everything else. And <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. Yeah, well, it's important because Renee is a really nice guy. And yeah. so the combination of those two things really kind of changes the, the scales and, and mm -hmm. makes RISC-V a, a much more prominent player in the world of processor IP uh, than it has been because they now have uh, an extremely active and growingly important vendor in Intel Foundry Services backing them and saying this is, this is going to be a very important processor IP technology going forward. Yeah, I would kind of say that it leveled the playing field between uh, ARM and RISC-V to a large extent by uh, this endorsement. Um, and also, it's going to be interesting to see how Intel uh, embraces RISC-V as an alternative architecture because they also join the RISC-V International Foundation. So it's not mm -hmm. just a hands-off uh, relationship. They are actually going to be an active participant in the development of RISC-V standards. Right. So, um, so Intel obviously has the their, their traditional x86, uh, dominating x86 platform, dominating in... Well, dominating some market segments. Right, yeah, PCs and servers. But when it comes to smartphones and you come into embedded devices and IoT, ARM is by far the dominating and, and larger vendor in terms of unit shipments. Right. So one of the things that, uh, you know, in our reporting that I found fascinating was um, we had been, ARM had been telling us and they had ambitions uh, to start eating away at um, the x86 position in um, servers and data centers, especially. Yep, and cloud. Um, right, and the cloud. Um, and but that's, that's been a long-term attempt, right? It's been years that, that they've been trying to get into the data center. 
And 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 if you look at what they're doing with the cloud vendors like uh, the AWS Graviton processor mm-hmm. and others, I think Microsoft and uh, Azure is going to go build their own custom chip as well, based on some rumors. They are actually making progress in that area. So, mm-hmm. the, and in fact, x86 vendors are a little bit on their heels here, uh, where AMD said that they're going to be considering doing semi-custom x86 designs for uh, hyperscalers. And uh, and I think that's true of uh, Intel would also consider that as well. So, you know, optimized silicon solution for hyperscale data centers, a.k.a. cloud, uh, is uh, one new area where ARM and x86 vendors are, are fighting it out. Yeah. The um, ARM and NVIDIA, prior to their announcement that they're, they're, they've decided that they have, they're going to go their own separate ways, um, they had um, registered a, um, a, a report uh, with the UK, with the, you know, the regulatory agencies in the UK, in which they held out that it would be very difficult for ARM to proceed to be able to finance uh, ongoing expansion and activities in the cloud and in some, you know, especially in the cloud, but in some other potential uh, business opportunities without the resources of, of an NVIDIA behind them or without going to a, the IPO route and hoping to get a lot of money that way. Um, is that suggest that, does it suggest that they aren't as strong in the cloud as the, we might be intuiting? Or does that just say that it takes a lot of money to compete and it's, you know, they don't, they're not sitting on that cash just yet? I, yeah, it's definitely the latter because they, they have to yeah. do a lot of investment up front, building high-performance cores that could compete in a, for data center applications. And they did that uh, under the brand name Neoverse 1 and Neoverse 2. ARM mm-hmm. has, uh, under ownership from SoftBank, has made the, a lot of those investments. So one of the things that, uh, that did come out of um, this uh, uh, project was that uh, SoftBank, still the owners of ARM, pulled in a lot of investment and 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 dumped a bunch of money into ARM to get them into these market segments. And I think you can you can argue that okay, they got the jump start into these the new segments, uh, cloud services, uh, cloud vendor uh, mm-hmm. architectures, and now it's more of a sustaining. Uh, a piece of the architecture. So the investment isn't as heavily front-weighted. Now they start to get some of the revenues from these these designs coming in as royalties. Well, let me jump in here, though, because it's not just an investment in creating the cores. It's an investment in creating the infrastructure necessary to put these cores into data centers. And here, mm-hmm. you're competing against the combination of both Intel and AMD, who have spent two decades developing the infrastructure and the software and the support and the relationships and the third parties necessary to create an entire ecosystem in the data center. And really, that's what any architecture, whether it's ARM or RISC-V, is up against when it comes to substituting for x86 in the data center. 
Well, that's interesting. And now we, we that brings us back to Intel, um, at least IFS, the foundry operation, um, uh, looking like it's providing some legitimate uh, full support with the RISC-V environment. Are they prepping their own competition or is there some expectation that risk five is going to, to hit other verticals or what it's just a wide swath of verticals? Oh well, yeah. It's definitely going to hit other ver- verticals. One of those is automotive. And in fact, mm-hmm. Intel's own subsidiary Mobileye has mm-hmm. announced that their uh, IQ ultra uh, SOC in the future is uh, going to be using risk five cores. So Intel it's, you know, it, is actually going to be consuming some RISC-V designs themselves, or at least a subsidiary of Mobileye. Mobileye is going to get at least a partial spin-out um, by IPO as well. But the um, uh, there there's applications for RISC-V, even within Intel Silicon, where uh, it doesn't necessarily mean an, an, a server application or it doesn't necessarily mean a uh, uh, other data center or uh, other uh, vertical application. But there are, I mean, there's plenty of vertical applications like, like automotive, embedded, um, that can use RISC-V and, and uh, it's a, a reasonable substitute for using an ARM core. So. And, and remember, you know, when we say RISC-V, we don't mean a single architecture. There are 32-bit RISC-V mm-hmm. processors and there are 64-bit RISC-V processors. There are very simple RISC-V processors that have very simple architectures and there are extremely complex ones that have coherent memory and all the things that you need to be a server processor. And there is just a huge spectrum of processors in between with all kinds of optional instruction sets. So this is exactly the kind of processor architecture that an Intel Foundry Services kind of offering needs to be able to Mm -hmm. provide its customers with anything that they want, no matter what kind of chip they want built. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that you sort of implied was it was Intel Foundry Services kind of creating an opportunity to make server chips that would directly compete against Intel. I'm pretty sure that wasn't Pat Kelsinger's idea when he originated Intel Foundry Services. Although, uh, you know, being an, uh, being an independent foundry, they have to be open to that op- op- option as well. They don't, they don't want... You know, if they're going to lose this, uh, this design of the architecture from x86 to an ARM or a RISC-V, they don't necessarily want to lose the business. And um, giving in that business to TSMC or Samsung uh, Foundry Services um, is still, I, I still think uh, Pat would rather have that business in Intel Foundry Services. Mm-hmm. So uh, th- it's not like, it's not as if the x86 has had no competition for 40 years. There's always been some competition. There's always been risk, various risk processors available, especially for embedded. But x86 has, 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 has been very popular. In special markets. Arm proved that you can... Right. In spe, Arm proved that there are other special markets and there's room for more than one architecture. It, do we have the sense that there's room for three popular architectures? I would say yes. Uh, yes, I, I absolutely. Think, actually, if you go back historically, 
Um, for the, I mean, we've the idea. Well, historically, there's been many different architectures. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There were many different flavors of risk. Uh, each vendor had their own flavor of risk. You know, you had Spark, you had Power Power PC. Still, Power is still around at S- IBM. Still around. Um, and then you had Alpha, Deck. Uh, I mean, the, the risk of 88K at Motorola, 29K at AMD. There was there was tons of risk architectures, and they whittled down. Um, and and Power, like I said, is still around. But uh, Spark's gone, and most of the others are gone. So you just had x86, and then ARM is now, and now, and now ARM is pushing their way into that segment. Uh, I think there's definitely room for a uh, a third architecture. Uh, before we had MIPS, uh, which was still a, a risk architecture that competed in originally in servers under SGI. Uh, then MIPS embedded does still sort of exist someplace. It yes. does, but but uh, oddly enough, Risk has uh, sorry, MIPS has decided that Risk Five is their future architecture. So even the even MIPS and then also Imagination Technology has jumped on the Risk Five right. bandwagon as well. And 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 Imagination Technology, which normally is known for its graphics core technology, is going to build a Risk Five CPU. And previously, Imagination owned MIPS. And then spun MIPS off, and now MIPS is also doing RISC five. So all the cool kids are doing RISC five these days. <laughs> well, and don't forget, let's let's mention all the old kids are too. All yeah, the old guys. Ch- China is extremely interested in RISC five as well because of the lack of royalties. Right. Also, the lack of uh, geographic control. Right. Um, the the the. Uh, RISC V International is based out of, I believe, Geneva, Switzerland. No, it's Switzerland. I think yes, it's Geneva. I think so too. So, so that sense of neutrality is is kind of overtly uh, uh, there, so. signaled by where they're yeah. where they're headquartered, very, right? Very much signaled. Yes. One off on a bit of a tangent. We've, we we, we never go on tangents one, on this. We never go on tangents, do we? Um, Cosines and sines, maybe. Right. Um, China is interested in, in risk five for the reasons you've just stated and that we've, we've been aware of that for some time. Um, but there's, but there's still the West, West is still trying to keep them from getting advanced semiconductor production, um, uh, technology. Um, and more specifically EUV, I believe right. is the, I mean, the key. Right, right. Technology. But I, does it make a difference if the if the if the Chinese market is somewhat isolated? Does it make a difference if they're making Risk Five chips not on EUV? Oh yeah, sure. If you know? it, look, uh, you know, tw- China is able to do anything down to twenty eight easily, and twenty eight is the sweet spot when you're talking about the economics of making ICs. It's plenty good enough for mm-hmm. making microcontrollers. So having China crank out, you know, several hundred billion microcontrollers based on 28 nanometer and risk five, that's a great match. And they could do that all day without EUV. There are lots of and, chips and also, to make. Yeah. A 28 nanometer is a, a great process, uh, very cost effective. You can build a lot of chips on that. And we have in the past. Um, and then using a chiplet strategy, you could, Put together multiple 28 nanometer RISC V cores and and build a a fairly sophisticated computer out of that server process. So it's doable. Very good. 
Anything I haven't asked about that's pertinent here that uh, struck your fancies? Well, you know, you do. We go back to the NVIDIA ARM deal uh, having fallen mm-hmm. through. Uh, ARM is pursuing an IPO, and uh, the deadline for that IPO set by uh, SoftBank is uh, basically a year from March, so March of 2023, end of March 2023. So they've got a year to really kind of prove uh, how profitable the business model is and uh, show that they can uh, hit, you know, a, a valuation that uh, returns some uh, some money back to SoftBank. SoftBank invested, I think it was like $31 billion into uh, buying uh, ARM, and they would like to get some return on their investment. Uh, you know, NVIDIA provided a $50 billion guarantee, so not a great return, but good enough return. Good. Uh, the, yeah. the whole IPO strategy is, is going to be a bit up in the air. So we ne- you never know with an IPO what it's actually going to, um, uh, you know, uh, price at and what the dollar value is. Uh, so, But their target is probably still going to be about a $50 billion uh, deal. So uh, ARM's got to get themselves in shape to show a, a valuation in that market and in, in that, that value for next year. So they've got to... Ray Nahas is a great guy. I actually worked with him in NVIDIA as well. Uh, he's an ex-NVIDIA guy, so, you know, um, oddly enough. Um, he's got a year to basically uh, tune up ARM to make it look uh, very appealing to the market. And there's another tangential connection here, and that is that we're recording this mm-hmm. on Valentine's Day. And this is the day that AMD has consummated its deal with Xilinx. And that's x86 news because... That is part of AMD's strategy for competing with Intel in the data center with x86 architecture type products boosted by FPGAs. It all comes around. It does. And those are ARM-based FPGAs as well, too. Uh, Well, some of them are, yeah. All right, gentlemen. Always a pleasure speaking with both of you. Thank you very much. You're most welcome. Good talking to you, Brian. Take care. You've been listening to Kevin Crewell and Steve Liebson, both of Tirius Research. I would also like to call your attention to another article that appeared on our website. This one, taking a look at what ARM is going to do now that the NVIDIA deal has fallen through. Look for the headline, From the Beginning, an ARM IPO was Plan A. And that is it for this episode of The Weekly Briefing. Thank you for listening. We'd like to thank Renesas, our sponsor for this episode. Renesas, a global leader in embedded semiconductor solutions. The Weekly Briefing is available through the major podcast platforms, but if you go to our website at eetimes.com, you'll find a transcript along with direct links to the other stories we've mentioned, along with other resources. The Weekly Briefing is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.